Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Will Summer. Welcome to The Daily Beast's Fever Dreams. I'm a politics reporter at The Daily Beast, and I'm currently working on a book about QAnon called Trust the Plan for HarperCollins coming out later this year. And I'm Kelly Weil. I am also a reporter at The Daily Beast, and I'm the author of the book Off the Edge, Flat Earthers, Conspiracy Culture, and Why People Will Believe Anything. On this podcast, we're going to take you on plunges into the sometimes hilarious, sometimes scary fanatics infecting the way that millions of Americans view the world and how they vote. Even in the aftermath of the Trump administration, the energy of these conspiracy theorists, grifters, and influencers is still pushing our mainstream political landscape closer and closer to a breaking point. Welcome to Fever Dreams. This week, we're joined by guest host Andrew Carell. He's a senior media editor at The Daily Beast. Andrew, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Now, Andrew, you have a unique position among our guest hosts in this summer of guest hosts in that you were a, your former Fox News employee. What was that like? I mean, I left a decade ago. I was there for three years almost, Fox business side, but it was still, I was on the same floor as all the major Fox News hosts. So I got to hear a lot of the hot gossip and a lot of the yelling, particularly down the hallway from a gentleman named Bill (laughs) O'Reilly. Yeah, I was relatively sheltered from a lot of the stuff, the crazy stuff that was going on in the Roger Ailes era because I was on a once weekly show that was more in-depth and surprising than you would ever get on the Fox News program. We would cover things like decriminalizing sex work, decriminalizing drugs, and we would go in-depth. And and there was a reason it aired at 8 o'clock or 9 o'clock on a Friday on Fox Business Network because (laughs) Roger Ailes did not want people seeing these arguments. Now, Andrew, when I think of old Fox News days, shows of yore, I think, of course, of Greg Gutfeld's Red Eye. My longtime companion in college, late nights, as well as comedy show like the Half Hour News Hour. Now, were you on one of these shows? What show were you on? After I left Fox and I started writing about media for a career, unfortunately. Well, fortunately, I got out of Fox, but I was on Red Eye several times back in like 2013. I never went on Half Hour News Hour because that existed before I was there. And also that was basically just there, a terrible attempt at The Daily Show featuring Ann Coulter and Rush Limbaugh. Easily one of the most embarrassing chapters in that era of Fox News, but nobody talks about it anymore because... definitely was a precursor to Greg Gutfeld's current show, by the way, which is just cringe humor. His mega (laughs) successful show. Yeah. Well, great. Well, Andrew, we're glad to have you on. You have the deep lore about Fox News, should we need it. (sighs) So first, our first item today is there's a new demon sex controversy. Now, people may remember a few years ago, I believe the summer of 2020 or so, there was a woman named Dr. Stella Emanuel, who became briefly a very big Trump world star. She was one of these hydroxychloroquine people until I wrote a story about her various kind of kooky medical beliefs, including the fact that she believed, the important thing here is this is not just a religious belief, but but she believed this would have medical effects as well. But she believed that you could have a dream in which you had sex with a demon, and then that would create various sort of gynecological issues for a woman or, or perhaps other medical issues for a man, because the demon would leave various kidney stones or what have you in you. Now, this now we have Michigan's Secretary of State Republican candidate. This, this woman has already has the nomination. Christina Caramo. CNN's K file reports that Caramo believes that you can get demonic possession from sex. She says, having intimate relationships with people who are demonically possessed or oppressed, I strongly believe that a person opens themselves up to possession. 
demonic possession is real. Andrew, what do you make of this? I mean, it's, yeah, considering the sperm doc from however many years ago, I mean, and she got the attention of the president at the time and a supportive attention. But also, I think, I forget what the data was, but a couple of years ago, I, I don't know if it was maybe which polling outfit it was, but I, I think most of the data suggests that at least half the country believes demonic possessions are real. Because like sit here and wonder, where do these people come from? And it's just, they're normies. They're normal people who believe this stuff. And it's not surprising. She also believes that Billie Eilish and Beyonce, and I forget who else, are satanic and possessed. And that's why they've achieved, achieved a pop stardom, because the devil is inside them. I think there's this tendency now, especially among these sort of candidacies that may go under the radar or political positions that may go under the radar for people to sort of take up the everything is demonic possessions. And if that doesn't pan out, go to something else. Italian satellites stealing the election, perhaps, or something like that. But This is an interesting item for what's becoming a recurring topic on the show, which is the rise of demons in our politics. We talked about this in the past. I don't know if it's the popularity of the Elden Ring games or what have you, but it seems like demons are really in the news. And this idea that... That, like demons are really a foot in our politics. The other thing I want to note about Karamo, who, by the way, we'll get into this in a second, but appeared at a QAnon conference last year in Las Vegas that has kind of become this the Rosetta Stone for QAnon's ongoing influence in our elections. She also believes that abortion is is child sacrifice, and, and in a very kind of specific way, like this child is being sacrificed to Satan. In light of Roe v. Wade being overturned, I wanted to highlight that use this sort of as an entry because this is actually a not uncommon belief that I see online in the right wing media, where you know people will have pictures of. Some kind of ancient Babylonian sacrifice to Baal, and they'll say the reason Democrats love abortion so much, or the reason they're so upset about this ruling being overturned, is because they do see these abortions as sort of a ritual demonic sacrifice. I think Karamo mentioning that kind of offers us an example of this belief in the real world. But finally, the Karamo thing is is in Michigan is interesting because she's also part of this kind of QAnon coalition to overtake these Secretary of State offices in battleground states. Obviously, Michigan is a big battleground state. Andrew, what do you make of this? Do you think QAnon people should be handling? our ballots it's so funny i was thinking about this earlier it's just like the secretary secretary of state positions at the local level not on the national level but in each state like it's not a position that normally was a contentious vote i mean all local elections should have robust level of candidacy but in this case it's just like it's very clear what's going on here is playbook is to just undermine the election at every level and i guess people who are attracted the most to that and can sort of garner support at the local level are people that speak the language of anti the devil <laughs> because like i said people believe this stuff like people genuinely believe that demonic possession is real and i wouldn't be surprised if it's like 40 percent of the country you know we take movies like exorcist a little too seriously and so it's just one these little mini mtgs getting pumped out all over the country to take over the elections and they're using the language of QAnon and and demonic possession but also like the ball thing you mentioned is a common thing in evangelical radio and talk radio that comes up not even just on the topic of abortion it comes up in general of like democrats are constantly sacrificing this or that that to ball. And I think it actually got a couple of years ago, it got a Fox News radio host in trouble. I think it was Todd Starnes might have been who had a guest on his show just waxing poetic about Democrats sacrificing to ball. <laughs> yes, Todd Starnes, kind of a favorite of mine, kind of one of the lesser known characters. Oh, one of my favorites too, yeah. He's a real like corn pone commenter. Like he wrote this book about losing all this weight and it was, the foreword was by uh, Mike the, Huckabee, obviously another put famous. put gravy under my hood or something with the yes, title of I, it or whatever. They checked my dipstick 
<laughs> and it came back with gravy on it. Was <laughs> the title? <laughs> uh, the be- the best thing about his shtick, by the way, is he does this whole "I'm one of you folks from Tennessee, and I'm here to tell you." He's kind of like he does the Huckabee shtick, where he's just one of the guys chewing on a piece of hay, just hanging out. And liberals are trying to destroy my lifestyle. Todd Starnes lives in Brooklyn, in like the heart of Brooklyn, like one of the easily the most liberal part of town, and he's doing these like talking about demonic possession on the radio it's just so bizarre to me he's a big like build back better like all i know is make my sweet tea sweeter (laughs) right yeah i think the the first line of his book was something like it used to be in my day i forget the line but it was something the punchline was back in my day this and now it's miley cyrus quirking on my face or something like that i'm like (laughs) it's really timely too so as you mentioned he did lose his vox position over that demonic possession the mention of that so demonic possession i think it can be a salient political issue but as todd starnes learns (laughs) it also is one that may lead you to trouble in the conservative media well andrew have you changed your twitter profile picture to have an american flag in the background no i have not also never tweet though but yeah it's probably for the best but you are in hot water because this month there's a new thing in the maga movement called america month now Here on Fever Dreams, we like to highlight these growing trends in the right-wing media, the internet. I think we were among the first to get on Let's Go Brandon. Now they have Let's Go Brandon branded fireworks. So we're way ahead here. And so I'd like to draw folks' attention to this new concept of either America Month or some people call it MAGA Month. Now, obviously, the jump-off point here is the 4th of July. So basically, in reaction to June being Pride Month, a bunch of Trump people online and, and Trump allies and MAGA, kind of the MAGA grassroots, have decided that this month will be America Month, or as I said, MAGA Month. They, they aren't like entirely on the same page about that. We have some audio here from Christian Walker, the son, who is himself notably gay, I think is relevant here. Christian Walker, the son of Georgia Senate candidate Herschel Walker, the previously recognized son, not the one that the Daily Beast has uncovered as being Herschel Walker's other sons. <laughs> yeah. Sodom and Gomorrah Month is finished. Put the rainbow flags down immediately. It's time for America Month, babe. We're grilling hot dogs and burgers, parading around the streets, celebrating freedom, and you're gonna like it. If you don't like it, get out. Get out. Done with it. I hope you had your fun, rainbows. I hope you had your fun. Um, But it's time to pack your bags up. It's time to put that stuff away in the closet for at least another year. And uh, we're, we're not doing any more rainbow stuff for this month. This is American flag, red, white, and blue. That's the only colors I want to see everywhere. And, and if you don't like that, again, you can exit stage left. But we're done. Welcome to America Month. So what's going on here? So I think what it is is that this is an attempt to basically, like, this is not a particularly, I think, sinister movement. But I think it's a larger part of kind of the anti-gay backlash we're seeing on the right, where they're saying, well, why aren't all these corporations changed their logos to be rainbow flag logos on Twitter? But now they're not American flags for America Month? Hmm. Like woke capital at it again. Yeah, but also, I mean, how many Ford commercials with American flags draped all over everything do they need to understand that every month is American month, especially in our later stages of capitalism, everything is America. Like, that's how it's always been. We're always celebrating America. Like, how many gravel voice narrators, Super Bowl commercials do we need of Ford to, to understand that? That's a great point. I mean, it is kind of odd to say suddenly this must be the month where finally... Finally, we're going to get some American flags out there and some patriotism. I am I am seeing this idea of people saying, oh, you have to change your profile picture. This is really the month where we go crazy with our trucks and our guns. But as you said, I mean, I, that's kind of every month here. 
these days, it seems. Yeah, though it's not it's not the right version of patriotism, I guess, is the argument you would hear from young Mr. Walker. I think what a lot of this sort of online fever swampy version of conservatism sees is they see successful liberal movements, social movements, especially involving corporations, and they want that. And so they ape it. They don't. But it's always like taking something that is so obvious, like the, the patriotism, something that is already pretty ubiquitous and wanting to adapt it to their sort of I want that. There's also, I think, this aspect of like what's something else we can be resentful about. I mean, in terms of why is no one celebrating America Month, the month we just made up yesterday? Gotcha, Libs. Yes, exactly. So speaking of true patriots, what's the latest with Mike Lindell and the election deniers? We're coming up on almost two years of the election, essentially the 2020 election denier, election skeptic movement. It's interesting. So this is sort of a, I think a lot of this stuff has been going on sort of behind the scenes in a way that's not entirely visible to everyone. But there is, along with the January 6th committee, stuff like this, I, I think some of the most visible stuff getting a lot of attention. Sort of on the lower level, there's this whole kind of like election denier roadshow. These are a lot of characters, a lot of kind of like lesser characters, but also Mike Lindell. And they sort of travel the country and they have meetings and they have kind of town halls and community spaces, maybe a couple hundred people, maybe less than that. They put up these figures like Mike Lindell, they put up their PowerPoints and they try to convince people the election was stolen. Or often I think these people are convinced the election was stolen and they try to rev them up for 2022 and 2024. So NPR has this interesting article last week about the way that this has become kind of like a systematized movement. And so they get people like Mike Lindell. There's a lot of kind of like lesser characters here, a lot of whom were associated with Lynn Wood, but now are sort of basically Lynn Wood has sort of turned on all of his former buddies, his former protégés. These are people like this guy named Seth Keschel, who's this former Army intelligence guy. There's a guy named David Clements, this New Mexico State professor who got fired for refusing to wear a mask, I believe, or or get vaccinated. And now this is the guy known as the professor. And so these guys travel around and they have these meetings with election officials and local Republican activists. NPR, I think, has counted more than 300 of these meetings and events. And basically what happens is, I mean, it's almost like a religious revival meeting where they come into town and then suddenly the local elections officials start getting all these mean emails saying like, why'd you steal the election? So for example, NPR has this example of this Republican local county clerk in Colorado with this guy named Douglas Frank, who's one of these election deniers, comes to town and all of a sudden she's getting these emails saying like, traitors will be exposed, you're going down. And the reality is, look, we're like I said, we're going on almost two years of this. You look at these guys' presentations, whether it's this, whether it's 2,000 Mules, which which has obviously also been very influential. And it's just totally like gobbledygook. But the average person, including me, is not really, oh, this guy has charts. I don't have charts. You know, he's got bar graphs and stuff. He must be on about something. And so so it does seem to be this successful thing to really rev up people about this idea of election fraud. Yeah, it reminds me a little bit of sort of the grifters who've latched on to NFTs and crypto, where because the specialized knowledge and it takes a lot of you and I could sit here and say, we know, generally speaking, that election fraud does not exist on the level that these people claim. But we can't sit here and go point by point because all they can do is just keep coming up with new points. Well, that's unfalsifiable. So here's this other this other thing. This, Like I mentioned before, Italian satellites that wiped clean the election slate or long dead Hugo Chavez actually had something to do with the election fraud. 
And so there's always this unfalsifiability. So they just keep sort of slipping away and keep coming up with these new things. And there's no way that we can possibly keep up with constantly debunking it because they're basically saying what feels good and it appeals to a lot of people, like on the local level, especially. These people want to hear this stuff because it explains sort of the world they feel where they're losing a sense of control, right? (laughs) So this is why these people are gaining popularity, kind of like traveling carnies coming to town and making people feel good. Flashing back to HBO's Carnival, (laughs) sort of like (laughs) that. (laughs) So this idea that they kind of constantly have this like endless line of uh, things to throw out. I mean, this reminds me a lot of QAnon, where people would say, what about this that proves Q is legitimate? And you'd say, well, like, yeah, that pen that's supposedly from Air Force One, you know, you can buy that at a gift shop. And they'd say, okay, all right, crap. Okay, well, what about this? You could spend your whole day debunking it. It's a waste of everyone's time. The issue is, I think the comparison here would be like Mike Lindell, okay, I have this hacker named Spider, and he told me this thing about packet captures, and then that gets disproven. And then they say, okay, well, what about the mules, and so on and so forth. I do think there's kind of an interesting other aspect of this growing election denial movement, which is that now for, obviously we're in primary season, some primaries are over, some of the election fraud people are losing their primaries. And so now there's this trend of just saying, well, yeah, I was robbed too. The Republican establishment has ripped me off. NPR had a related story about how in Colorado, for example, Tina Peters, who's a county clerk, potentially facing criminal charges for meddling with election equipment, she really got blown out in her attempt to become Colorado's Secretary of State. So what do they turn to? They say, hmm, isn't that suspicious? And they say, do you mean to tell me Tina Peters, star of the election fraud movement, would lose? I think not. It's kind of the echoes of this kind of bubble people are in where they say, you guys saw the boat parades. We were all in the boat parades. Did Biden have boat parades? Like, the ergo, the election was stolen. And they yeah. say, look, I mean, how many... This candidate who supposedly beat Tina Peters, like how many Telegram followers does this guy have? And from there, and it kind of spins out. I mean, you in Georgia, Candace Taylor, the gubernatorial candidate who folks may remember from wanting to destroy the demonic Georgia Guidestones, she's doing a similar thing. And, and thus far, I mean, these people haven't really gained any traction in terms of like actually managing to either kind of do a January 6th type thing in their own states or, or try to successfully overturn the election results. But but it is interesting, I think, seeing how the, the echoes of this now now persist into Republican primaries. Do you think they truly, truly believe this stuff? I kind of struggle with this where sometimes I think some of these people are true believers where no matter what they think I couldn't have possibly lost, it is always stolen no matter what you say. That's basically what the playbook here is going forward. I mean, we know this this is election trouble coming in 2024 because of this and the midterms possibly. But like, do you think Tina Peters genuinely believes that she lost the election? Or is this sort of just the Republicans are really good at handing down a playbook and sort of following it in the way that I don't think organizing Democrats are? And the playbook is, no matter what, just keep denying it and, and keep essentially saying, I didn't lose. I feel that feels like the playbook. And sometimes I feel like there are true believers. Maybe Marjorie Taylor Greene, I think, truly believes a lot of the things she says. But then there are also, I think, they're just sort of opportunistic actors. And I wonder how many of them genuinely believe it. Yeah, you know, I think it's a great question. And I mean, I think it's one that we sort of run into with, with a lot of these hucksters in various ways is like, to what extent, what mix is true belief? What is sort of specific, their own goals? In this case, I think, I think Tina Peters has acted in a way in the past that would suggest she's at least pretty hardcore into it. I think she's She's acted against her own interest in some ways. But at the same time, claiming your election was stolen, it helps you avoid admitting that at least temporarily you're a loser. And I mean, what could be more appealing, I think, to the human psyche? So on another note about this election fraud roadshow, I mean, people say, okay, all right, so Seth Keschel or David Clements rolls into my town and gets maybe several dozen Republican activists riled up. I mean, okay. At the Hyatt Regency, yeah. Yes, exactly. At the hotel by the airport. What is the practical effect on this in my community? Well, the answer is it does seem to really rile people up to become either election observers 
Gerbers or sort of the, the partisan election challengers. NPR talked to some folk who have been motivated to canvas more, to ask people, hey, did you really vote for Joe Biden? And this kind of like verging on voter intimidation type stuff saying you need to sign these affidavits saying you really voted for Biden, which I mean, just can you imagine, uh, you know, saying, hey, uh, don't be intimidated, but I'm going to need you to sign this legal affidavit. Yeah, I'm this random stranger. As often with these things, I think it portends trouble ahead. For sure. Yeah. I mean, it's only going to get worse, honestly. I know that's like a very dark feeling, but I mean, we sure this is something you've hit on the show a bunch of times in the past. It's just like, this is just the beginning of this. Like, there's no putting the genie back in the bottle of just the playbook of calling every single election a fraud if you lose and a total, complete, overwhelming victory if you win. So I'm kind of terrified to see where this goes, honestly. So, Will, who do we have on for this week? All right, this week we have Baynard Woods. He's a reporter in Baltimore, and he's author of a new book called Inheritance, an autobiography of whiteness, in which he investigates his own family's history in white supremacy. He's also the co-author of I Got a Monster, the story of a corruption in the Baltimore Police Department that tracks the same story that we're now seeing on HBO's We Own This City. So I've known Baynard for a while. His book grapples with a lot of kind of hot topics in American politics and culture right now. So I'm interested to see what he has to say. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Fever dreams like all Daily Beast journalism exist because of the generous support of our subscribers, the people who pay for access to Daily Beast reporting and who are, quite frankly, our favorite people on the face of the planet. Want to get in on all the action? Join now and get unlimited access to Beast reporting, exclusive ad-free newsletters, and our undying appreciation. Head to feverdreams.thedailybeast.com to sign up. All right, this week on the podcast, we have Baynard Woods. He's a reporter in Baltimore and the author of a new book called Inheritance, an autobiography of whiteness. Baynard, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me here. Absolutely. Well, first of all, congratulations on the book. This is, as the subtitle says, it's an autobiography of whiteness. You sort of investigating your own position in America's racial atmosphere, or I'm sure you could phrase it better, having written a book. But what prompted you to write this book? I mean, you had just finished co-authoring a book on corruption in the Baltimore Police Department the in the Gun Trace Task Force called uh, I Got a Monster, a book I loved. What was the jumping off point for you? I mean, part of it was, did come right after that book. I really started thinking about this back when Dylan Roof went to Charleston and, and massacred nine churchgoers. He grew up about 10 miles from me. So I started looking into my family's history and thinking about the role that whiteness had played in my life. At that point, and then through covering Charlottesville and that sort of stuff, but focusing on this police book was almost a way out at looking at at the problems, the racial problems of policing in America. And I started to realize that the logic of policing was really similar to the logic that white people use in our lives as we go about them on a daily basis, which is essentially something that we expect the law to protect us and not to bind us. We expect it to bind everyone else without protecting them. This guy, Frank Wilhoyt, sort of articulated things in that term, those terms around in 2020 when I was thinking through some of this. But it it really made me look at the ways in my own life that I thought that 
the job of the law was to protect me and not really to bind me in the way that that allowed me to overlook what the police had been doing to everyone else. Baltimore, where I live, is a majority black city. It's a deeply, deeply segregated city that really borders on an apartheid type of segregation. And most of the white people don't notice that at all. Even if we're out, say the massive protest after the death of Freddie Gray, even if we're out protesting, the white people don't see the way that race functions in their lives in a city like When you decided to start sort of looking into your own family history, how did you go about that and, and what did you find? I'd known that my family were slavers and Confederates and all of these sort of horrible things without really thinking through what that meant. And it was when Dylan Roof seeing those photographs where he went around my home state of South Carolina taking photographs at sacred sites for him of all of the kinds of places that most of the people like me who move away have tried to sort of forget. And I saw that they were were festering there. So I, I started looking into the, the census records, the so-called slave schedules, but I'd really become fascinated with it. And it was huge. It's hard to figure out. And the way that slave holding families, married slave holding families, to even just try to make a moral calculus of the number of people who had been held in, in complete totalitarian sort of bondage in order to create my life and, and the sense of whiteness that I had inherited was mind boggling. And so I ended up focusing on, I had heard 20 years ago or something, my dad told me a story that his grandfather, my great grandfather had assassinated or killed a black man right after the civil war. And he didn't know any more about who the person was that was killed, except that my great grandfather had to flee and hide out in Texas for a while. And so I started really trying to narrow in to figure out who it was he had, had killed. And it turned out he, as part of a Klan action in 1871, had assassinated a black county commissioner named Peter Lemon. And then that case had been covered up so thoroughly. He, he, they ended up giving the Klansmen amnesty. They all came back, all of the ones who had fled. And he was ultimately elected to the state legislature. I'd been told growing up and as something to be proud of without realizing that it was the legislature that past Jim Crow laws. And so something about that case gave me a way to, similar to the, looking at the Gun Trace Task Force, gave me a window into seeing a lot of what else was going on with the Baltimore Police Department. Looking into that specific case of my family's history gave me a way to look at the vast centuries of just unspeakable crimes that they had committed in South Carolina. I guess from your perspective, so I mean, how did you feel learning that this was kind of like your family origin, not just this slaveholding, but this very like kind of atrocious record was what your own life rested upon? Yeah, I mean, part of it is that there's no slaveholding without it being a truly atrocious crime that people think, oh, my family were kindly, my family must have been good. And, and overcoming that is part of it, that there's no such thing as a kindly or a good slaveholder, thinking that you own other people and exerting absolute control over them to extract absolute value from them. There's no way that there can be any ethical way to jibe that with one's life. And so so part of it was realizing that the truly horrible nature, I mean, in, in Germany, there was never again after the Nazi atrocities. And I was raised in a world where it was the South will rise again. And realizing that and the extent of the cover-up that it took in order for my father, my grandmother, the previous generations of my family to believe that those who had held slaves had somehow been noble people that we should be looking up to. And that sort of thing was, it really dealt a moral blow to me. And, and even worse, realizing that the Baynard family in, in 1860, just to pick a year, believed that they owned over 700 people. 
The Woods family thought that they owned 23 people. And so I realized that even when I was was writing about dirty cops, when I was writing about white supremacists at Charlottesville, that my name was standing like a Confederate monument over every story I'd ever written. And that also was something of a, it took a lot to figure out how to, what I try to do about that. On that point, Boehner, when you look at the cover of this book or when you look at the jacket, your own name is crossed out throughout the book. And and so it's visible here, but it's like a black marker went through it. What was your thinking there and what does that represent? Yeah, so it's sort of taking a tool from French deconstruction, from Jacques Derrida and people like that and applying it to the goals of American Reconstruction. And so it was a way I realized that I didn't know about the horrors that my family committed because it had been covered up. And so if I were to simply change my name, then the cover up would continue and there wouldn't be any future accountability or any future reckoning. And so I couldn't change it, but I couldn't bear to let it just stand normally as it is. So when I have a choice, I strike through it and let that stand as crime scene tape, cordoning off the crime, acknowledging it, while also warning people about it. And But I didn't want to go, most websites that anyone writes for the content management systems don't allow a strike through, and, and it was causing problems for people. And I figured that also was like the first typical white guy move. If I have this grand gesture that makes me look cool, and then all kinds of people have to do various labor that in order to make that happen and go unsung. So it's only... It's not something I want to be a super stickler about, but it's something when I have the choice that I would choose to do when it comes to my name. So, Boehner, you write in the book and you talk about interrogating your own whiteness. And you mentioned earlier the protesters in Baltimore who are seemingly unaware of what actually is going on and how their whiteness affects their daily lives. And I think this is a thing that a lot of people, normal Americans, when you talk to them, they kind of struggle with the concept of it, and they're automatically defensive. You've had slaveholding ancestors, and there's the backstory there, but a common refrain you often hear from people who are sort of hostile to this line of thinking is, well, my family came over from Italy or Eastern Europe in the last 75 years. How am I to be responsible for slavery and racism? How am I racist just for being white when I'm children of immigrants? And how do you respond to people like that? Yeah, it's a great question because it is something of an exceptional case. The Southern Americans whose families were slaveholders in the same way that a crew of particularly dirty cops, we really tried to make sure wasn't just about that, but about the the structural issues. And and thinking through that, criminal conspiracy law, really, I'd ended up covering a lot of trials that used RICO sort of statutes. And that really helped me think about the way that whiteness worked, that in a federal conspiracy case, you don't have to have been at the conspiracy at the very beginning for to be a part of the conspiracy. But in that conspiracy, any the hand of one is responsible for the actions of all. So I think that that's sort of the way that, I mean, because obviously the other parallel retort to that is when people say, my family may have done this, but I wasn't around. So why am I responsible for that? And it's similar that that partaking in this conspiracy that allows value to adhere to your whiteness at the expense of other people is furthering the goals of the conspiracy and participating in it, whether or not one was around in one's family was here or oneself was here in, in any of the worst periods of American life. We, we still have tremendous issues dealing with racism and White people in many ways are still gaining advantage from those. In many ways, we're not, and we're simply told that we are. For part of the book, in part of the book, I get arrested in the late 80s for having weed as part of the drug war. And it was very much impressed on me that it was better on me than it was on the black men who were being imprisoned for it. And it took a while to then think, but without the racist drug war at all, then I wouldn't have been arrested. We'd have more resources in the city. There would have been more things to do. And 
So ultimately, like Heather McGee argues in her book, The Sum of Us, it ultimately ends up harming us as mafia conspiracies, QAnon conspiracies, whatever, also harm those who are involved in them often. I feel like that sort of the, was the key to me figuring a way into thinking through the answers to that was looking at it as a conspiracy and then trying to think how that conspiracy spins out. On that note, Baynard, I mean, how do you see that these sort of echoes of the Confederacy playing out in our politics today? I mean, when you sort of dived into your own family's history, what did you learn about our present day? Yeah, I, I feel like, I mean, January 6th was particularly strange because I was writing the part of the book where one of the other things I discovered was my great grandfather's involvement with the Red Shirts, who overthrew Reconstruction essentially in South Carolina by making the election of 1876 be contested in the state for governor, claiming that they won it while knowing that they hadn't won it, and then leading an army to storm the Capitol. They stormed the Capitol, they ended up occupying it, and there were two parallel governments going on, the Republican Reconstruction government and the Redeemer white supremacist government. For several months in, in, the, in early 1877 in South Carolina, finally when the federal troops pulled out as part of the compromise for the presidential race that year, the redeemers, so-called redeemers, the white supremacists, took control of the state back from the Reconstruction Republicans and it showed a very clear blueprint for how what we were seeing over this last year's in the 2020 election, the storming of the Capitol on January 6th, and the same kind of proliferation when Grant ended up suspending habeas corpus in South Carolina to stop the Klan atrocities. And so then the, all the Klan groups morphed into rifle clubs, and then those morphed into the sort of larger unit of red shirts, which were led by Wade Hampton, who disavowed a certain amount of the more extreme racist tendencies, whereas like a guy named Martin Gary was kind of the oath keeper, proud boy faction of the racist right at that time and orchestrated the the real marching on the Capitol and that sort of coup that they undertook. And so you see the same rhetoric of feeling like every Black gain is a white loss, and you see the same tactic. So, Baynard, how do you see these issues at play in Baltimore? I mean, you're very familiar with the policing there, having written your book about police corruption there. I mean, it, now that you have researched so much about the history of the South and obviously up in Baltimore as well, I mean, how does that inform your reporting in the city? Yeah, that's a great question. One of the things I'm really excited about in the city is that the Baltimore Baltimore Beat Weekly, now a Black-led, Black-controlled nonprofit and print alt-weekly is coming out to, partly to reach and coming out in print to reach the 40% of people in the city that at any given time don't have solid internet access. So this big, fancy startup newspaper, the Baltimore Banner, began here a few weeks ago, and but they have a paywall and are not really serving the city in the way that even when I was at Baltimore City Paper, that we often didn't serve the city and really served the white L kind of down the center of the city with the larger black population on either side in terms of where our boxes were distributed, in terms of our staffing. So thinking about how information gets disseminated and how important that is to the way that we're viewing the world. And so their boxes are all going to be distributed throughout the, the largely segregated black neighborhoods of the city. It's a black controlled paper and it's going to be viewing the city in a much different way. And I think it's, it's so, I mentioned that now as so important because there's this amazing thing happening all across the country, but I feel like we were a little bit ahead because of after Freddie Gray, we had a spike in murders as well. The Gun Trace Task Force book, I Got a Monster, grew out of that in many ways, that it was acting as counterinsurgency to 
crush the uprising. And they were causing a lot of the violence that ended up leading these calls for cops need to be tougher. We need more proactive policing and we need to lock more people up. And that's happening again in Baltimore as we are in the midst of an incredibly violent summer and happening all over as you see media organizations, you see politicians all rushing back towards this lock everyone up sort of mentality. And I feel like that is so similar to the mentality that I saw in South Carolina and that I saw in policing that Baltimore's black majority, the purpose in the economy of policing and politics here is to be bound and not protected by the law. And white people continue to sort of traipse through the city as if we are supposed to be a separate class of citizen here. That's so interesting, Boehner, that you hit on this idea of the idea of some sort of growth of sort of police accountability and then crime rises and there's a big backlash and this idea that you're going to let the cops off the leash. You mentioned that in Baltimore and the way that played out with the gun trace task force. Can you talk about that, what the task force was? Because obviously you, you wrote about this in your book. I found it to be a very interesting book. What that was and politically how it happened. Yeah, so right after the death of Freddie Gray, the and there was an uprising, no one, that was a week in Baltimore where no one was killed except for Freddie Gray, which is a, a very rare week in Baltimore. And after that, though, there, there was a spike in murders and it, it was blamed on, oh, the people who looted the pharmacies, all the drugs coming through. Turns out one of the cops was one of the people who looted the pharmacies or looted the looters. And mainly it was Viagra and Cialis that they sold into the county rather than dope that was causing all of this violence in the city. But because there was this myth that crime was rising because there was a police slowdown, and you see it repeated again and again and again, which gives the power to stop crime to proactive policing, which really means waging war on citizens, driving up, popping the door, jumping out of the car, chasing people, making up probable cause later on. And almost everywhere, that's the way that it's practiced. And so what they were doing, they were doing this 50 times a night, court testimony revealed, and and driving up to any group of black men they saw standing around, popping open the door, chase anyone that ran. If they found drugs, they would steal the drugs because that wasn't getting rewarded in the same way. We had shifted more to a war on guns. And we see this happening around the country right now, too, where white people especially are willing to justify But not only white people are willing to justify all of the same civil rights abuses that we looked the other way for earlier with the drug war for guns now, because, oh, it's a murder crisis. We need to get the guns off the street. And I mean, it made me really change my view on gun control because I realized that while the patriots out there worried about the jackbooted thugs kicking in their doors was not going to happen to those people, it was happening in West Baltimore to black people every day. And we were allowing it to happen because they'd say, oh, he was dangerous. He had a gun. And then we, we don't question the police account of things. And so they were wildly rewarded. They were Baltimore's most popular and successful police within the department because they were not following the Constitution at all and just often planting guns. When they ran over a guy, they planted a BB gun under the car and said he threw it. He trained other officers to carry BB guns. They planted dope on people. And then they would just break into houses and steal kilos of cocaine, steal kilos of heroin, and then sell those back into the community because they knew it wasn't part of the job of a defense attorney, was the only person listening with the defense attorneys to say, hey, you know, your honor, my client had 10 kilos instead of eight. So they got away with it for a long time. There's the level of corruption was just astounding with everyone within the units double and triple crossing each other and also being multiracial, being Mamadou Gondo, one of the main drug dealers who, who led the feds to him. By the way, the feds didn't catch them in any way, like when they were here doing the DOJ report on Baltimore policing. They shared a wall. They had an office right next door to the GTTF. 
It was really, <laughs> oh they God. were trying to bring murder charges against heroin dealers for people when there were overdoses. And they were going to use this on this guy, Shropshire, who turned out being associated with one of the cops. And they got him on the wire, the cop on the wiretap. It spun out. So they were doing the same drug war stuff they've always done and happened to stumble upon some of the biggest dealers in the city who are actually cops. You know, one detail I loved in your book was how all of the corrupt cops, they because they were they had to funnel their money into home improvements because it was cash payments to these contractors. So they all had enormous decks around their houses and just these really like palatial suburban homes. And there's still so much money out there. They did hide a lot of stuff in decks. They had contractors who could cook the books. I mean, we act like the corruption's over. There was a homicide detective shot in the head in mysterious ways. Some people are very insistent that it was a suicide, others that it was a hit. Um, his family believes it was a hit. And the, the lead homicide investigator on that case recently just was in court because he kidnapped a contractor who he thought he made him pay too much money. So he showed up with his badge, with his gun, and with his whole squad, put the guy in the car, took him to the bank, and made him get a cashier's check and give him money back. And so, like, that's the person who's investigating the homicide of another police officer. It's, it's a completely illegitimate organization that gets such a huge majority of our budget, over half a billion every year. And that's where all of our funding goes. And that's part of the, the really racist project of the city, even though a lot of our leadership is black in the city. Wow. So, Baynard, getting back to your current book, Inheritance, what fact did you discover that surprised you most? What's something that really stuck out to you? I mean, one of the things that really surprised me that we don't look at at all is the extent to which South Carolina, where I grew up, was really totalitarian society for several hundred years and totalitarian in the most gruesome sort of way that like reading, really reading through all of the iterations of their slave codes in 1740, it was called the Negro Act. And they really exported that to most of the other states. But the, the degree to which a very small minority, the white population of the Carolina colonies is a very, very small minority white, very large majority black. And the extent that they went to, that the white people went to control everyone else for such a long period. We look at it in the Supreme Court gun control ruling, recent ruling, we talk about the ways that in abortion, the deep tradition, we need to have some deep tradition of something in the country to jibe with the originalists. But in 1740, white men were not allowed to leave without carrying a gun. They were required in Carolina to carry guns at all times because of the collective need to always be vigilant about slave uprisings. And so I think that it really reframes our whole position of looking at the country as an experiment in freedom at all. When you think about the, the, that we moved from this vast totalitarian system to an apartheid system under Jim Crow that my parents were raised under to then seeing this pushback for that now, that the extent of things was, was in some ways the most shocking to me. And I was really also delighted to find out the, vibrancy of and the vitalness of reconstruction culture in, in South Carolina. I mentioned the Baltimore Beat coming up here and didn't end up finishing the answer to that question, which was there were Robert Smalls, who the great formerly enslaved five-term U.S. congressman, war hero, all sorts of amazing things, ran five different newspapers in Buford. And the number of newspapers, the way that democracy was being, that 
the first multiracial democracy there, and in many ways anywhere in the country, was really became this vital, vital experiment that led to so many things like compulsive public education, compulsory public education, and all that sort of stuff that it gave me some bit of hope for what we could see again, that we can move out of this totalitarian, authoritarian system into a really vital and and living multiracial democratic system. But it takes something vast like Reconstruction to make that happen. Well, it's certainly a lot to dig into. Baynard, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Again, the new book is called Inheritance, an Autobiography of Whiteness. Baynard, thanks a lot. Oh, yeah. Thanks for having me, Will. Can't wait for your new book and and love the podcast, y'all. Thanks so much. So, Will, I'm truly dreading this, but what do we have for Fresh Hell this week? All right, so Fresh Hell is the segment where I take you down to the depths of hell. But fortunately, I lead you all the way back. It's all good. So this is kind of a happier one. But I guess my first question is, Andrew, you know, it was the 4th of July earlier this week. Did you enjoy an alcoholic beverage like so many of your countrymen? Several. Oh, you're in big trouble because (laughs) there's a growing New Age movement. This is not really a right-wing thing, but, but there is a growing New Age movement that believes that if you had an alcoholic beverage on July 4th, there is a good chance you may be stuck in the next dimension or in this dimension when we all jump to the new one. So what's going on here? So on July 5th, the CERN-Hadron Collider, we all know the famous particle accelerator in Geneva, Switzerland, will be fired up again after a couple years absence. Now, there is kind of a bubbling CERN Hadron Collider conspiracy movement that this thing is messing with the fabric of space and time, not unlike Doctor Strange. And so this idea that we're all going to go into another dimension, into the multiverse. And so this is something I was really not aware of until the 4th of July, when suddenly we started seeing all these TikToks online of people saying, we're going to jump to the next dimension on July 5th. Now, that means you need to be in a really positive space. When the Hadron Collider gets turned on, you need to be ready to sort of journey through the abyss. So drinking is going to open up your demonic pores and evil spirits or dimension, interdimensional beings might get in. There's this TikTok we have audio of here where they say, keep your vibrations high. Those who are not prepared will get stuck in the previous dimension. So, Andrew, I think we've had a good run. I'm glad we got to have you on the podcast before the dimension jump. What do you make of all this? <laughs> I'm ready for whatever vibe shift this is. If everybody gets transported to another dimension, yeah, this is the actual vibe <laughs> shift. The vibe shift is everybody leaves for another dimension, and I'm left here with all the other people who had a beverage on July 4th, and that'd be pretty sick, honestly. <laughs> yeah, honestly, yeah. <laughs> the squares have moved on to a new dimension. Yes. What's interesting here is, once I started looking into this, and I should give a shout-out here to Julian Field, of previous podcast guest, and and QAnon Anonymous co-host, he kind of struck onto this CERN thing. But once he tweeted this, I kind of started looking into this, and there really is a pretty big community of people who are really anticipating July 5th as the big CERN movement. But one thing I thought was interesting is they really point to the famous internet phenomena of the Mandela effect as proof that CERN, every time it's turned on, we're jumping dimensions. Now, Andrew, are you a Mandela effect guy? Do you have lost memories? Yes. The Berenstein Bears and all that stuff. Yeah, of course. I forget uh, I forget the other classic example. Oh, Febreze spelled with two E's or whatever instead yeah. of one E's, another one. Yeah. So for those who don't know, the Mandela effect is this idea that people feel very – they have some misconception about something. and It's often it's something like it happened in history or how something is spelled. Rather than being like, oh, I guess I was wrong, they say yeah. perhaps parallel universes are merging. <laughs> and th- this is why perhaps like history is changing somehow. And so the reason it's called the Mandela effect is because people were convinced that Nelson Mandela died in prison. And then when they learned that this was not the case, 
case or that he died in the 1990s. When they learn this is not the case, they say rather than, oh, I guess I should have checked Wikipedia before playing this bar trivia game and getting it wrong. They say, oh, well, there's some kind of demons at work or somehow like our realities are merging. There's a couple other examples. As you mentioned, the classic one is Berenstein Bears, how that's where it's Berenstain or Berenstein. Ahead of this episode, I looked up another <laughs> couple classic ones. So thinking that Sex in the City and Just Like That is actually Sex in the City. And this is a pretty common one. I, I feel like I thought this for a while. But at the same time, I did not chalk it up to a sort of dimensional merger. But instead, I, I just was like, well, I guess I don't watch that show. The Skechers, thinking Skechers has a T in them, the shoe brand. So these are all Mandela Effect examples. And so I say this to the audience so that people are, are aware of this as we enter the CERN, the new CERN dimension. So if you start thinking things like this, maybe it's that darn particle collider. Big, big, big shout out to John Wilson on HBO, How To With John Wilson, that whole episode about the Mandela Effect where he goes to a conference and there are people talking. He, he gets deeper and deeper into the conference where people are just like listing off things that they, they swear they remember. And then eventually he gets to the one guy who's leading it who just explains, yeah, it's because we're traveling between different dimensions. And every time you remember something differently, it's because you hopped to a different dimension. And really all this is just people people's inability to process nostalgia, like at the bottom line. It is fascinating. I think it kind of gets into a lot of kind of conspiracy theory stuff we talk about where... It's like there's often like a much simpler but like sadder thing where it's like <laughs> yeah, you forgot truly. or you were wrong. And it's like, yeah, but what if? I have to say, though, Andrew, I do think that there is one of these Mandela effects, I believe, which is this idea that Ed McMahon was handing out checks from Publishers Clearinghouse, the giant check. And now people are saying this is not true. But I feel like I do have a strong memory of that. Yeah. And I think it was debunked as being because he was in a commercial for something that had a similar name. And so people, again, once again, people misremembering sort of their nostalgia and not really being able to process it. I think that one especially is a big one with the boomer generation where he was that was the ever present in the 80s, right? And so we're looking back on something. Well, then call me a boomer (laughs) because (laughs) because this is real. Well, we're recording this episode on Tuesday. It'll come out on Wednesday, which means by then we will be in the new timeline. Hopefully, if Fever Dreams is misspelled or something like that, you know, hopefully folks can still find us. Yeah, so we'll see everyone else in the new post-CERN timeline. See you there. On that note, let's wrap up this episode of Fever Dreams from The Daily Beast. In future installments, we'll also be speaking to some amazing guests at The Daily Beast and beyond, from politics to popular culture. We hope you'll subscribe to us on your preferred podcast app and share the show on social media and at your family dinner table. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Will Summer and Kelly is at Kelly Weil. That's W-E-I-L-L. Come say hi. This podcast is produced by Jesse Cannon with music by Brian DeMeglio. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.